I'm Julia Sherbakov, and this is Impact Journey. Conversations with hidden heroes making big societal change. One of the assumptions that we often start with in economics is that everyone is self-interested. What if we started with a different set of assumptions, that we care about other people, or that there is altruism, or that we care about the groups that we're members of? Uh, We would come to different outcomes. We would probably measure it differently. Happy New Year. I'm happy to be back for a new season of Impact Journey after a nourishing break. And to welcome us into 2020, I am delighted to welcome ecological economist, Dr. Mary Jane Fox. So first, a bit about her impact. Mary Jane is a professor at Regis College in Colorado, where she's director of SEED, the Sustainable Economic and Enterprise Development Institute. Now, about her journey, I was fascinated to talk to Mary Jane because I did not even know that ecological economics was a branch of economics. Today, it feels more relevant than ever as we head into what we're calling the decisive decade of the 2020s. And we start to look around and question why some of our systems are not serving us. And Mary Jane has a unique perspective that really does two things. One, it challenges the assumptions behind these economic systems that we've been taking as a given. And two, she uses a language that we don't normally hear in economics, a more holistic and more human-centric language. As always, rate, review, subscribe, and send other ideas for this new season to impactjourneypodcast at gmail.com. And enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mary Jane Fox. Starting out, I'd love to just hear in general a bit about your background and how you got into what you're doing now, like where that began for you and this interest in the environment and economics. I'm from Scotland originally, and I grew up in the Middle East and moved to the U.S. as a teenager. I do feel like this question of belonging and growing up in different places and not really being from any of those places has given me a perspective of an observer and a listener, always kind of being slightly on the outside. And I'm actually most comfortable there. So I'm an ecological economist, and that's a a field of economics that's growing. I feel like I've chosen a field of study that is on the periphery. Also, I'm consulting with extractive industries like oil and gas and mining and finance. A lot of my environmental colleagues are not pleased about that. So I feel like I'm on the outside there too. Oh, wow. And then... I I do a lot spirituality and faith and energetic medicine, and that is is kind of an organizing part of my life. And so being an academic, academics are not that pleased by curiosities in that space. So I feel like in in a couple different ways, (laughs) I do this not belonging thing and it can cause discomfort, but in some ways it's also comfortable to me. Hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so I'd love to take each of the pieces of what you just said. So the being ecological economist, and I don't even know what that is. I'd love to hear more about that. What does it mean to be an ecological economist? And how did you even get into that? I got into it. So my undergrad was um, at the University of Texas in Austin in business ethics and Arabic. I was interning for a privately held geopolitical intelligence platform. I was passionate about peace in the Middle East, having grown up there, and that's why I was studying Arabic. And then I was studying business ethics, and I had this change of heart while I was in that organization, leaning like 
heavily on my business ethics education. So I left that job and really shifted into a different space. And so after undergrad, I, I worked for Road Trip Nation, which is a PBS documentary, road tripping as my job in this big green RV, asking college students, like, what path do you want to go in your life? And then I was wanting to go to grad school. And my dad actually found this degree in ecological economics at the University of Edinburgh. And it was exciting to me because it was in Edinburgh and I was Scottish and I was like, oh, I'm going to get to live in Scotland. And it was really exciting to me because in my business ethics courses, when we were learning about corporate social responsibility and the environmental side of that, that's what ecological economics was about to me when I first read it. My understanding of economics, I loved it in high school. I found it easy. <laughs> I loved it <laughs> in college. I found it easy. I think I found it such a simple way to organize such a complex world. Hmm. And that's part of the problem. So to me, economics really it's about relationship. It's about relational exchange. And it often gets so misunderstood because it's really about what connects us. And yes, we've chosen that to be money in a lot of ways. It connects us across the globe. I think the fact that it has been so misunderstood is one of the reasons why economics as a field isn't providing solutions that we need to the types of problems that we have today. Um, survival problems, crises. And it's also one of the reasons I think economics is not an inclusive field, really. And so ecological economics, if we were to draw a picture of the economy, neoclassical economists would probably draw a box with businesses and then a, a box with households. And it's called the circular flow of the economy. We have an arrow going from businesses to households and wages, and then an arrow from the households to businesses. And that would be labor a very simplified version. That would be what in a traditional econ class you would see. But in an ecological eco economics class, the first thing we draw is a big circle and we label it the earth system. Because we know that every piece of what happens in economics comes from a source in the earth. And then inside that we embed society. Because we as humans, we're embedded in the earth system, we're of the earth. And so we have society as a circle. And then we would finally draw a circle that we would label economy. And this is really a pivotal like shift in thinking about the economy. It reminds us of our power because it's embedded in society. We designed it and we designed it for a certain time and a specific place really. And it was a specific perspective of humans that designed it and we can redesign it any way we want. It's up to us. And I think that reminder of our power is key here that this quote, the economy is not gravity. <laughs> so we get to redesign it to be more inclusive, more representative of the humans that are here, the place that our earth is in. And I see my job as partly like hospicing the old way, which there were a lot of good things that, that came about from some of the old ways, but really also midwifing the new way and seeing that economics and business, which is a big part of economics, can be in service to human thriving and thriving of planet Earth. I see this hospicing and midwifing as what we collectively, all of us on Earth right now, we're part of this transition team. Wow. Oh my gosh. There's so much of what you just said that I'd love to first just recognize because it's so different than how we normally talk about the economy and society and the environment and business in the context of all of it. I think so much of it feels very natural to me 
now having worked in sustainable business for many years, but I remember when I was first starting out in it and it seemed like you'd been believing that the earth was flat and all of a sudden someone tells you that it's round (laughs) and you're like, wait, 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 what? I need to reorient myself. I'd love to hear more about what you learned doing your degree in ecological economics, both in terms of knowledge that you gained, but also what did you learn about the need and the urgency for change? And then what was possible? So kind of both looking backwards in terms of of where we've come and where we are today, and then where we're going, where we need to go. Because I feel like economics historically is, it's an analytical field. It's a very kind of numbers, okay, let me run the math, run my model and tell you now where we're at. Whereas I think what you're talking about, it's almost like you are a midwife (laughs) for the next set of future systems that we need to create in our society. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that remembering that there are so many schools of economic thought, you know, in my class, I teach about nine, but there's more than that. And they all are based on different assumptions. And we have a dominant school of thought that is um, the way you get into academia is by showing that you buy into and believe in a certain school of thought. And we call it neoclassical, but there's other ways to label it. And the set of assumptions, whenever you build a model for anything, you always have to start with assumptions. And one of the assumptions that we often start with in economics is that everyone is self-interested. And we actually see there are studies that show when you take a traditional econ class, you come out on the other side more selfish. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, what are we doing to the world? It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And, and what, if, what if we started with a different set of assumptions? What if we started with a set of assumptions that we care about other people or that there is altruism or that um, we care about the groups that we're members of. And behavioral economists are looking at this and they're seeing a lot of interesting findings. And it's useful because it demonstrates more about the reality of the world, that we have mothers, fathers, we have kids, we have siblings, we have people that we love, and that we even extend our love beyond just those circles, that humans are connected to each other and we're tribal and that leaning into maybe our better nature, the things of human nature that um, connect us. And some researchers suggest those things are the ways that we have survived tribally and the ways that we managed to evolve was because we were connected and in community. And what if the assumptions that we started from are those assumptions in our economic models? We would come to different outcomes. We would probably measure it differently. And you asked me when I was studying for the master's degree, I have a PhD in it too, but the master's degree was when I first got exposed to what GDP actually is and its narrative of how it became the most powerful number in the world and the way the game is all centered around. And I, when I learned about that, I was kind of in awe of the process of how things get designed, who's in the room when they're designed, and how things become powerful the people that were in the room didn't include the diversity of humankind, for sure. It wasn't a diversity of race or gender or location. And so I have reverence for and respect for its design um, in the context and also recognizing that we can redesign the economy right now. It is GDP (laughs) and we get to redesign it if we want. Now, it's such a powerful number. How do we like loosen its power perhaps and shift? And that's a great question that I'm really curious to see. And I don't have the answer to that, 
but I do lean on the fact that we designed it in the first place so we can redesign it. Oh, that's fascinating. And that's actually a really good example in your work that would help the rest of us just think of this in a different way, which is what's our metric of success here? And is that the right metric? And is there an alternative? What have you done in your work since then to help kind of advance that thinking? Because I, I, I'm curious also what kept you on the academic track as opposed to going into something else, into business, right? Yeah, I left that master's degree and I went uh, to work for a big environmental consulting company to work on U.S. NEPA, Environmental Policy Act, uh, permitting processes for pipelines. And I was writing the environmental justice, socioeconomic, and public participation part of those environmental impact statements. And so I did that for a while and was really disappointed in how NEPA gets applied. There's the potential for it to be a, a powerful tool for protection for communities and environmental systems, but it wasn't really being applied that way. So I had been teaching in undergrad in the summers, environmental science in Alaska, taking kids out into nature. And I loved teaching. I also started um, with a friend, a nonprofit working with kids in, in elementary school, using breakdance and hip hop as like a gang prevention tool. So I, I became a third grade teacher. And then I was a literacy and behavior interventionist in schools. And I loved teaching. And one of the parents of one of the school I taught at learned about my degree and he worked at Colorado State University and asked me if I would come and teach their environmental economics class. So that's how I got into kind of the academic space. Um, you got to get a PhD if you want to do this long term. So I started a PhD. In that time, while I was doing the PhD, I was also consulting with oil, gas, mining and finance organizations on sustainability questions. And I loved that. I loved it so much that multiple times I almost quit the PhD to just do that. And I what really, did you I love about really that? Fun. Because like you said, to a lot of people and probably environmentalists, that's like, whoa, what are you doing there? Yeah, I've been called a traitor a couple of times. Um, <laughs> because, but I, I think this like integration and this idea of hospicing the old way, you know, the old way is still here and good people are still working in those spaces. This is what's here and now and where the impact is. So that's part of what I loved about it. Mm. And it actually answers another question I had, which I actually on this podcast, I haven't had too many academics. And it's um, an interesting challenge for anyone who goes into academia versus into business or nonprofit. It's a debate I constantly have with a lot of people, which is, do you try to convince and transform the people who are in power now? Or do you try to bring up the next generation in a better way so that when they then get into positions of power, they can do something better than what we're doing today? And it's interesting because you've gotten a chance to do both. As a professor, as an educator, you're working with the new generation, but in your work in consulting, and I love how you call it in terms of hospicing the old way, you almost can't do just one or the other to kind of bring in the next generation. You also have to understand the current power structure and, and what they're doing and what's um, motivating them, what's potentially stopping them from doing something better. So it's interesting. Do you see the marriage of those two, I guess, in your work? I really do. There's a Toni Morrison quote, the function of freedom is to free someone else. And I think that as a teacher, it just feels like such a privilege to get to do that, to create 
what economics is as something that is accessible and hopefully empowering to people that may not have considered it that way. And because I teach at a Jesuit institution, Pope Francis, the current Pope, has said a lot about environmental justice. Laudato Si is this letter that he wrote about the environment. I'm encouraged to, where I'm teaching now, to include questions of environmental justice and social justice. And so I get to be that full self in this space, which is not always what academics get to do. I love teaching, but I also love collaborating, consulting, and being part of the enterprise solution too, because I do see that business has a lot of power and has co-created with those of us that are consuming uh, a lot of the destruction and the harm that we see in the world. And because it has that much power, it can be used to change the system in another direction. And so I love getting to be part of the teaching part, teaching a different narrative, um, and also the implementation part. It's so interesting because you and I are on such different sides of it. And I love hearing it from your perspective because it is a bit of an insider-outsider perspective. And I feel a bit like an insider-outsider sometimes as well. But I'm, I think where I'm seeing rays of hope is probably different than where you're seeing it. So I'm curious, what are you working on now that's giving you that bit of preview of the future of hope and where you're seeing some of these pieces come together? Now I'm the director of the SEED Institute, which stands for Sustainable Economic Enterprise Development at Regis University in their business school. And so I'm getting to design a SEED fellowship for students to think about this hospicing the old way, midwifing the new way. What does it look like for them? And then also a SEED speaker series where people can come in and share with each other in the community ideas on this topic. So that's like in the immediate material world, I'm working on that. I also am really interested in the intersection between spirituality and entrepreneurship and how those ideas, how when you're doing something really hard, when you're trying to create a new world or, or birth a new idea, do, do people call on spirituality in some way, whether that would be like mindfulness and walking meditation, whatever people conceive that to be. So I'm really interested in when you're doing a hard thing out in the world where there's so much criticism and there's such a dynamic space and so much risk and potentially fear, I'm curious about that and doing some research on that. And then another piece of the puzzle with businesses is looking at, especially in the U.S. right now, shareholder advocacy and what that looks like. What does it look like if we restructure boards of publicly traded companies? This question of what does it mean to be publicly traded and what are the ways that we can support those in publicly traded companies who want to shift the system? So I'm particularly interested in the mechanism of shareholder advocacy and looking to see how that is supporting that shift. I also, our language is so important. I I love rock climbing and I go up a a route and then people are like, you killed that. I'm like, I birthed it. Yeah. (laughs) A lot harder than killing. And like, let's honor the feminine, the idea that our language is really important. And that comes back to like ecological economics and the shift in language there. And economics jargon or lingo, making people feel intimidated. If we use different language, the same concepts can be accessed by different people and they can lead to different solutions, different ideas when there's more inclusivity. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I'd love to take this time to appreciate you. What I realize in talking to you now is there's so much value in what you're doing that I think we really need to create models of environmentally and socially aware business and economics. So that's in terms of what you're doing, but in how you're doing it, how you're talking about it is also so different from the norm. And it's so holistic and inclusive and people-centered. And I want to appreciate that about you as well. Thank you. The big thanks to Dr. Mary Jane Fox. You can follow her work in the links in the show notes, which include her TEDx talk called The Answer is More Car Accidents and Cancers. This has been Impact Journey. See you next time.